Well, it's been a, a real joy to preach through the book of Daniel with you. Um, I can't believe that after six months of our Dominion series, last Sunday we finished our, our study of the book of Daniel, and a lot of people have been asking me, Matthew, where are we going from here? Uh, what are we going to do next? Uh, there was so much in Daniel 12 last Sunday that uh, we didn't really have time to, to get into that, but I wanted you to know that after our missions weekend in March, I'm really excited to start a new sermon series called Assured or Assurance from the book of 1 John. So we're going to be going through 1 John together um, after our missions weekend. But for the next two weeks, I wanted to take advantage of the the in-between time to take two weeks to focus on deacons. All right? Yeah, that might not be what you thought I was going to say. Well, well, I think the time is ripe to talk about deacons. So, So let me try to answer why. Okay? Why do I want to talk about deacons? Well, a couple reasons, okay? First, God cares about his church. Do you believe that? That God, God doesn't just sort of set us in motion and say, see you on the backside. He cares about his church, not just the universal church, the, the local church. Okay, Kingsway, he cares about you. He cares about you so much so that he would purchase you at the cost of his own blood. Your God could not make a louder statement of your value in his eyes. In our sin, right? That's when he shed his blood. Well, we were still what? Sinners. Christ died for us, but we're a blood-bought people. So we're precious in the sight of God. And as such, he gives us clear instructions in his word concerning how we ought to conduct ourselves in the household of faith. Okay, a biblical church, think of it this way, a biblical church is a rightly ordered church. A biblical church isn't just a church that kind of gets started with the Bible and then goes off into la-la creative land. No, a biblical church is a rightly ordered church. And that includes honoring and establishing the two offices that God has honored and established for his church. Namely, elders deacons, okay? So four years ago, we, we gave some, I think, much-needed attention uh, to the office of elder or pastor, including the role of, of bivocational or lay elders. Believe it or not, that was back in 2013. And at least from my perspective, that investment of time, particularly in seeing God raise up bivocational or lay elders, has already paid tremendous dividends in this church, tremendous dividends. And I'm particularly talking about Chris and Josh. Um, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So here, here's the deal. This is not an exaggeration. Um, I don't think our church would be here today. If four years ago, the Lord had not kindly led us in establishing lay or bivocational elders. I don't say that just to be the emotional guy who's you know, looking for effect. I really believe that. I certainly wouldn't still be in ministry without their support. So I'm, I'm really grateful for you guys, grateful for you, Josh, even though you're still in training, my goodness. Um, side note, Josh, later this month, is going to give an update on his preparation for ordination. So eager for you to hear from him on that. 
Uh, Chris, you've been a huge support for me. Um, he came into the office yesterday, working across the hall, and I just thought, man, I want this guy to be around here every day. <laughs> it's great. So it's grateful for the attention we gave to the office of elder pastor, but, but we've never really given attention to the diaconal office. Okay, yes, that's a word, diaconal. Um, and these are the men who are responsible for guiding the church in meeting material needs through the ministry of mercy. Okay? And I think one of the reasons we haven't given a lot of attention to deacons in this church, as far as I know in our history, is, is the historically high view that we've had of the pastoral office. Okay, so let me try to explain what I mean here. I think for many years we reserved a lot of the key leadership responsibilities, key areas of ministry in the church for paid full-time staff. Okay, that's not exclusive, but, but in general. We, we expected paid full-time pastors to be gifted administrators um, who could manage the artistic layout of the Christmas Eve banner, who could edit the bulletin, uh, who could triage benevolence request, okay? And, by the way, not neglect the preaching of the word and prayer. Um, I call that a super pastor, shorthand, okay? And, and that model, I think that worked for a time because we were able to hire enough pastors to address both the spiritual and material needs in the church, does that make sense? So if you're going to have pastors handle both, paid full-time pastors do both spiritual needs and material needs, you just have to have enough of them so that the spiritual needs don't drop along the way, okay? Now, as the current only full-time pastor, I'm grateful that's no longer the case, all right? I don't feel pressure to be a super pastor, I don't. I, I think God used the time when we had a lot of paid full-time staff to bear significant fruit. Okay, I'm not, I'm not denigrating the past, but, but I would argue, church, that I don't think that was economically sustainable over the long run. You look at like 100 years of church history. You can't always just pay and staff everything. And, and secondly, I don't think that was as spiritually healthy as what I, th I see God building in our church today. So, so I want to just describe this for you, in case you haven't seen this already, okay? Right now, we have more volunteers engaged in significant forms of ministry all across this church than we have ever had before. Okay? So let me, let me just give you some examples, all right? By the way, this is the moment where you don't necessarily listen for your name um, or think that if I didn't mention your name that I don't value your ministry. All right, examples. We can do this. I think of Sarah Campbell directing King's Kids. Okay? Thank God for you. I think of Kevin leading the band. I think of Quentin investing in Frontline or, or Will building a prophecy team. You know, volunteers administrate our Sunday meeting right now. They teach Sunday school classes. They help manage our finances. They even revised our church covenant last year. 
Okay, that's, that's significant. And I haven't even mentioned those of you who read scripture or share prayers of praise or confession or start Bible studies or maintain our building and grounds or do all kinds of other things that used to be handled more so by paid staff. Again, I'm not denigrating that approach. I'm simply wanting to say that God is doing something among us where he's, he's pressing, he's urging all of us to go all in and take responsibility for our church. Okay, I hope you can feel that. Um, as I look at over the next five years, that's, that's one of the reasons why there's no church I'd rather pastor than this church, because I see God on the move doing that. Uh, to put that in biblical terms, I think he's helping us do Ephesians 4.15 in a new way. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part, notice that didn't say pastors, you know, thank God he didn't say when the pastors are working properly, no, we hope we are, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I can't tell you what freedom that brings me as a pastor. You know what? It's not my job to make the body grow and build it up in love. Guess whose job that is? Our job. That's our job collectively. And so I'm thankful for ways that God's helping us offload responsibility that used to rest on the pastor's shoulders and put it back where I think it really belongs. On you as the members of our church, the body of Christ. So so I'm certainly thinking more carefully these days about what elders, pastors, are uniquely called to do. I'm thinking a lot about that. Providing spiritual leadership through, through the ministry of the word and prayer and looking for ways to strengthen the role that every member plays, including the role of deacons. Okay, so now we're back to deacons. All right, I'm just trying to provide some context here. Why are we talking about this, all right? Let me give a second reason. So God is taking responsibility that used to be on the shoulders of paid full-time pastors. He's pushing that out into the whole church. That's the first reason I think we need to talk about deacons. Here's the second. Our congregation is changing. Okay? When the congregation is primarily young families who, by and large, are upper middle class, which, side note, was our history for, uh, that's been the case here, I would argue, for much of our history. When that's the case, you don't have a lot of material or physical needs in the church. I mean, now you do, I'm not saying they're not there, but you don't have as many, okay? That's not the case today. That's not the case today, all right? We, we have a long way to go, long way to go, until our church community resembles the diversity in Midlothian. We've got a long way to go till we resemble more and more the diversity of heaven. But I thank God that we are more ethnically and socioeconomically diverse than we've ever been, guys. Okay? That, that's, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. That draws attention to Christ who holds us together. And... I know I don't have to convince some of you of this. Our, our membership increasingly, it spans the age spectrum. 
All right? It really does span the age spectrum. And at the same time, the number of and the variety of material needs that we have as a church, as individuals, keeps increasing. Now, I notice that, I see that, and I don't think that's a problem. You know what I think? That's a blessing. Now, why is that a blessing? Why would a pastor stand up and say on a Sunday morning that seeing God build his church such that the number of physical and material needs in our midst is increasing is a blessing? Why do I say blessing and not problem? What's a blessing, quite simply, because it forces us, gives us an opportunity to be the church, okay? To strengthen our ministry of mercy. And in particular, the role of deacons. So that, that's why I want to take two weeks to talk about deacons. Now, there's a very important next question. And it's really important to do it at this point in the sermon. Okay? Why should you be concerned about deacons for the next two weeks? You know, I, I've been in your shoes. Where, where somebody up on stage is saying, I'm excited to talk about this. And you're thinking, I'm so not interested in that. I mean, you know, maybe you're sitting there thinking, church government, polity, rightly ordered, oh my word, would somebody wake me up when we get back to Jesus? <laughs> All right, I won't ask you to raise your hand. Some of you did. Thank you, Mary. No shame in that, okay? No shame in that. But, but I want to answer the specific question now, why should you care about this? Okay, and not just bide your time till we get to First John. All right? Here's why. Here's why. God commands all of us to be engaged in the ministry of mercy. Every single one of us. Okay? In other words, to become a Christian is to be given a ministry of mercy. You can't call yourself a Christian and say, I didn't get a ministry of mercy. You, friend, you receive mercy from the risen Christ, you automatically are given a ministry of mercy. That's the way it works. That, that's what happens when, when the mercy of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in and radically changes our hearts. You get a ministry of mercy. Biblical love doesn't stop with a smile and a handshake out the door of this church. It doesn't, okay? Biblical love is physical. It's practical. It's, it's material. You know, it does things like making meals or covering bills or fixing cars or visiting the sick or adopting the orphan or, or a thousand other expressions of the Lord's command to love our neighbor as ourselves. You know, when Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself, do you realize that means prioritizing the physical and material needs of your neighbor just as much as you prioritize your own? For real? Yes, it does. To love your neighbor as yourself, okay? To make their material needs a high priority. Why, Why are someone's material needs, particularly in the church, a high priority? Well, it's because God created us as embodied souls, okay? We have a physical existence. We live in a physical world, and we have physical material needs. And by the way, Jesus Christ, through the gospel, is redeeming all of it. Okay, when he comes back, he's not going to create some sort of weird Gnostic spiritual existence. There's going to be what? A new heavens and a new earth. 
New earth. The, the God who is redeeming us is redeeming all of us. Embodied souls. And that means the gospel speaks hope to our souls and our bodies and calls us to extend to others the same spiritual and material blessings that God has lavished on us. That's the way it works. All of us have been given a ministry of mercy, which means all of us need help to be equipped and led in knowing how do I practically practice a ministry of mercy to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, tracking with me? So, so if you're a Christian, you've been given a ministry of mercy. That means we need to be led and equipped in knowing how to faithfully and effectively love each other in material ways. Enter deacons. Okay, enter deacons. I'm, I'm convinced that some of you, maybe many of you, have been called and gifted by God to serve as deacons in this church. Okay, to guide us in meeting material needs through the ministry of mercy. What's amazing is that many of you are already doing that. <laughs> you know, in some ways, in raising this topic, I feel like I'm just waving a flag on a train that God's already driving. All right, many of you are already doing that without any sort of title or public recognition. So, so why should you consider stepping into a formal public office? Okay, why is it not sufficient to just, I'll just keep trying to be kind to people. Well, please do. <laughs> but why should you consider stepping into a formal public office? Well, 1 Timothy 3 tells you why. Because God makes a promise to those who do. For those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. If some of you have been gifted by God and called by God, to serve this local church as deacons. You know what I don't want to get in the way of? I don't want to get in the way of you experiencing good standing and great confidence. I don't. God's eager to give those blessings to you. It's not, not about the title, but it's about embracing and honoring a biblical office. Okay? That's the background. All right, now, how are we going to approach this? How are we going to approach this? I am well aware that in a room of this size, uh, we have all manner of preconceptions and ideas we walk in here with, particularly if you've spent a lot of time in various churches, of who a deacon is and what they're supposed to do. So here's what we're going to do, okay? We're going to take two Sundays to survey what the Bible says <laughs> about deacons. Okay, this week we're going to look at Acts 6. Next Sunday we're going to look at 1 Timothy 3. Okay, so I want you to think of that as, as a survey of the biblical data because church traditions are helpful. I'm going to allude to some of those this morning and next Sunday. But church traditions aren't authoritative. Okay, God's word is authoritative. And so when it comes to even something as practical as who in the world is a deacon and what's a deacon supposed to do? We want to start with what the Bible says and, and temporarily at least kind of, kind of mentally check our church traditions and experiences at the door, and then bring those in after we've already looked at scripture, okay? So that's what we're going to do for the next two Sundays, and then over the course of the spring and the summer, probably into the fall, knowing that these things take time, we're going to hash out in some members' meetings the details of how deacons should be identified, installed, serve, etc. in the church, okay? So two Sundays, survey the primary biblical text, um, then the rest of 2017, we'll try to get into the details together. So,
That's what we're going to do. So open your Bible to Acts 6, if you haven't already. I'm going to read the first seven verses. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is a remarkable narrative, all right? And I'm going to break this down under four headings, okay? The context, the problem, the solution, and the result. That's what we're going to do, all right? Think of that as table contents. Where are we going? What's the context? What's the problem? What's the solution? And what's the result? So let's, let's consider the context here first, okay? We've been in Daniel for a long time. Maybe it's been a while since you were in Acts, so let's remember the context, all right? In the previous chapter, Acts 6, Luke, the author, reports that the early church is growing rapidly. Now, you could argue, Matthew, that was a lie. Because rapidly doesn't quite do it justice. More like crazy fast. Or, I mean, rapidly is almost an understatement. Because in the span of what seems like a couple weeks, a couple months, they go from 120 members to 3,000 members <laughs> to more than 10,000 members. I mean, if, if you've ever been in a leadership position, even in another organization, can you imagine your company going from 120 employees to 3,000 employees to 10 to 15,000 employees in less than six months? I mean, that's just, I don't have a category for that, okay? It's part of me that when I pray that God will build our church, there's a little asterisk that's like, only as fast as we can handle it, you know? So, It's growing rapidly. Acts 5.14 says, More than ever believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. So so you've got apostles working signs and wonders. People are being healed. Hearts are being changed. Sinners are finding salvation through the power of the gospel. And the Jewish high priest and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, they're filled with jealousy, Luke says. They got jealous. They didn't like the attention these Christians were getting. All right? And so they had the apostles arrested, questioned, beaten, and released with a warning not to speak in the name of Jesus. Don't do it. Well, look at verse 41. Okay? Verse 41, chapter 5, book of Acts. Look at how they respond here. 
the apostles, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Listen, if our culture ever looks more like Babylon than it does right now, that is your job description. Okay, you know, Daniel and his friends faced a lot of pressure, a lot of persecution in their culture to be quiet when it came to the things of God. That is not what God ever calls his people to do. Okay, it does not matter what the government says we must do. We obey him and we refuse to shut up. That's our call. And they did that. They wouldn't stop speaking of Jesus. And now look at the result. Acts 6, verse 1. These days, the disciples were increasing in number. Okay, I'd summarize that this way. Persecution plus faithful gospel proclamation equals church growth. That's the equation. Seriously, over and over again in the book of Acts. Persecution, rampant, violent church persecution plus faithful, bold proclamation of the gospel equals church growth. That's what's going on. That's the context. The gospel is unstoppable. The early church seems unstoppable, except there's a problem. That's the context. What's the problem? Okay, look at verse 1 again, chapter 6. What's the problem? It seems to be going really well, but there's a problem. The Greek-speaking Jews, that's Hellenist, okay, complained that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. You read that and think, widows being neglected, daily distribution? Give me categories, all right? Well, let's let Luke give us categories. So earlier in Acts 4, he writes this. There was not a needy person among them, speaking of the church, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. But evidently that plan was not working for a certain group of people, okay? Namely, the Greek-speaking widows. You know, widows with multiple languages? Yeah, True story. Because there were two groups of Jews in the early church. Okay? There were, there were Jews who were native to Palestine. Their native language was Aramaic. They also spoke Hebrew. And you had Jews that had been scattered abroad in the diaspora, and their native language was Greek. Okay? And so there was a division in the church because the Greek-speaking Christians noticed that their widows were being neglected. Now, it helps to recognize that there was no sort of uh, what today we would call social security in place. Okay, so there's no social security safety net. If, if you didn't work, you didn't eat. And if you were an older widow and you couldn't work, then you were in real trouble unless somebody else provided for you. So it's important that generosity toward the poor and widows was one of the defining characteristics of the early church. You see that in the early chapters in Acts. But for some reason, these Greek-speaking widows were being neglected. Okay, they weren't getting food. So you have a complaint arising on the part of the Hellenists that's directed toward a material or physical need. 
But do you know what it really points to? There's an underlying ethnic tension. We need to see that. There was a a presenting, pressing physical need, but it's pointing to an underlying ethnic tension. Notice that Luke doesn't say a complaint arose among the Hellenists. What does he say? A complaint arose among the Hellenists against the Hebrews. That's division. That's the seed of ethnic division in the church, okay? So you've got, you have a lack of equitable care that's threatening the unity of the church. And you have a pressing material need that's threatening the credibility of the church. So unity's on the line, credibility's on the line. That, that, that should scream to us, this isn't just about, oh, we have a little unfortunate problem in the back room. We've got some widows that just keep saying they're hungry. Somebody take care of the widows. No, Okay. There's a problem here. It's threatening the unity of the church. It's threatening the credibility of the church. All right, and in the words of Cornelius Van Dam, I love how he says this, unholy division is endangering the joy of redemption. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. And the apostles, the 12, who are the only recognized leaders at this point, they they see there's a problem. So what do they do? They summon the whole church together convinced, look at verse 4, chapter 6, verse 4, that it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. It's, it's interesting. That's their first response. They get the whole church together, and apparently the first thing they say is, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, please listen carefully to this, okay? They don't say that preaching the word of God is superior to the ministry of serving tables. They're not saying that, okay? They simply contend that that for them to invest their time addressing this particular problem would be for them to neglect the main thing that God had called them to do, namely preach the word of God, okay? The, The key word there is it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. There's no ministry hierarchy here. Don't read that into the passage. There's there's only a humble recognition that that God calls certain people to certain forms of ministry and other people to different forms of ministry. Okay, that's just called humility. But the fact that this is their first response suggests pretty strongly that they were facing a not-so-subtle pressure to dive in and fix the problem. Now, let me just get a little personal here, okay? The same thing happens all the time, all the time in churches today. All the time, okay? Pastors try to be superheroes, and congregations are quite happy to let them try. (laughs) Why? Why do we do that? Well, Well, because the pastor's the dude in charge, Right? And if you've got a problem, who do you want to talk to? Who's in charge? And suddenly, whatever the problem is that, that is filling your mind, the expectation is, if that guy's in charge, then the only right response is, he should fix it. <laughs> I mean, maybe you've felt that even in your own business or other settings, right? We, we, we naturally think that way. And, and quite frankly, there's, there's not a day in my life as a pastor where I don't live in this tension. You know, where on the one side you have the unchanging priority of the ministry of the word and prayer. And on the other hand, 
you have legitimate, significant, real and important material and administrative needs in the church. And so you just sort of live like this stretchy guy in the, in the middle. I, I feel that tension, okay? I live in that tension. Both are important. That's the problem. So what's the solution here? What's the solution? Well, I, I think, if I could say it this way, that what the 12 didn't do is very insightful. What they didn't do is insightful. Notice, they didn't try to fix it themselves. So think about this. You know, they didn't say, our deepest apologies to the Hellenist. We promise we're going to try harder to feed your widows, and we're looking into some new productivity tools to help us get that done. In fact, Peter just got a new smartphone contract with AT&T, and it comes with this time management app, and so we think that we can create a new window in our schedule to tend to your widows. No, they didn't do that. They didn't do that. Okay, what, what did they do? How did they respond? What's their solution? Well, they recognized that a significant material need had to be addressed for the sake of credibility, the sake of unity, and they chose, this is so important, church, they chose to look to the members of the body to address the challenges in the body. That's critical, okay? Verse three, look there with me. Verse three, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So they exercised careful leadership by challenging the church to exercise two gifts of their own. Okay, what are these? First, they called the church to exercise a collective gift of wisdom. Gift of wisdom, okay? Look back at verse three. Pick out from among you seven men. Why did they say that? By the way, why did they not do what they did back in the beginning of Acts? Where when they needed a new apostle, they did what? Cast lots. Well, why didn't you just cast lots here? I mean, that would be a lot more efficient. You've got, I don't know, 5,000 people. You really want to hear from all of them? Well, what's changed? Pentecost has happened. Okay? So every Christian now is filled with the Spirit. What does that filling with the Spirit enable every single genuine Christian to do? Every member of the body of Christ to do? It comes with a wisdom, a discernment to perceive genuine spiritual gifts in other people. So they responded by calling the church to exercise a collective gift of wisdom. Make some recommendations here, okay? Second, they challenged the church, rightly so, to exercise a particular gift of mercy, okay? Notice this job description here. They needed members who could, quote, serve tables. Now, when we think serve tables, when I think serve tables, you know what I think? I think of the, the man or woman who's going to make sure that my lunch this afternoon is as convenient as it possibly can be. You know, they're going to take my food order, make sure I never run out of ice or water, and, and just make sure I have a great little experience. I'm, and if I do, I might give them a tip, okay? Well, well, that's not what the apostles were asking the seven to do. Okay, that's not what they were asking them to do. So think about this. In a church of probably between 10 and 15,000 people at this point. You can imagine there had to be quite a few widows. If you just do the math on that. It's not easy to collect money from that many people in a way that preserves the integrity and credibility of the church and minimizes temptations to dishonesty. 
That's not easy, okay? Then, once you've done that, you have to evaluate who qualifies for the daily distribution and who doesn't. And that's an important question. Undoubtedly, you know, easy to offend some people along the way with that one. And you have to figure out, are we going to give these widows money directly? Are we going to mobilize the church to cook for them? And then, of course, there's the whole precipitating challenge of, well, how do we make sure that the Greek-speaking ones don't get neglected? Okay, so, so it's, it's complicated. It's a lot more than just, would you like enchiladas with a side? It's complicated, okay? It's a major operation, I would argue, requiring significant gifts of financial stewardship, administration, spiritual discernment, compassion, and sensitivity to individual needs. Not to mention absolute personal integrity. That's what's needed here, okay? And in light of the job description, the apostles laid down three requirements. Okay, so remember we're talking about the solution here. Three requirements. What do these seven guys have to be? Well, first, they had to be men. Yes, I just said that. Yeah, they had to be men. That's very interesting, given the problem was among the women. Did you track that? Who was having the challenge? Greek-speaking widows, older women. I think I could have made a decent argument for marshalling younger women to care for the older women in their material needs. But they didn't, they didn't do that. Why not? Well, well, Luke doesn't tell us explicitly. But I think if you look at the job description I just described, you can recognize that that that's a position of significant spiritual authority and influence, okay? And you combine that with 1 Timothy 2, where Paul says that women in the church are not to exercise spiritual authority over men. It's not surprising that the 12 insisted the seven have to be men, okay? So they have to be men. Second, they have to be full of the Spirit, I love this. I love this. Because it reminds us that, that guiding the church in meeting material needs through the spiritual ministry of mercy is exactly that. It's a spiritual ministry, okay? It's intensely spiritual. And it requires an abundance of all the fruit of the Spirit. So if you're going to guide the church in meeting material needs through the ministry of mercy, then you bet you better have some love and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. You bet you better be full of the Spirit if you're going to try to pull that off, okay? Because it's not primarily administrative. It's service-oriented, right? It's service-oriented. In that sense, it's a little different than the oversight role of an elder, but it's also similar to an elder, in that it requires the man to exercise some serious spiritual leadership. Equipping, mobilizing, envisioning the church to use their God-given gifts, ministry of mercy, in a way that's genuinely effective and fruitful. Okay, that's, that's a serious form of spiritual ministry. There's no way, there's no way that seven guys could single-handedly handle all the mercy ministry needs in a church of 10 to 15,000 people. Okay, that, that's nuts. There's no way. What does that tell us? That these men who were set into this office weren't just running around doing ministry themselves, 
But their ministry must have consisted of equipping, preparing, training, leading, deploying all the members of the church. Again, we all have a ministry of mercy to know how to best live out that ministry in the local church. That's what's going on here. They have to be full of the Spirit. And finally, they have to be men of wisdom. Men of wisdom. They have to be men. They have to be full of the Spirit. They have to be men of wisdom. That, in some ways, that's just simply another way of saying they have to be full of the Spirit. You're never going to find a man who is full of the Spirit who is not wise. All right? But it draws attention to the fact that, that leading the charge among the members of a church and addressing material needs through the spiritual ministry of mercy, that requires a massive degree of wisdom. Massive degree of wisdom. I mean, think about this, okay? You have to be wise in reading people, understanding people, knowing how to intervene in situations where there's a material need, but because it's a money issue, it is so easy for people to get offended. So easy, okay? You can, these seven guys, you can either strengthen the unity and credibility of the church, or you could shatter it. They're not just taking out the trash. Okay? It is a significant exercise of spiritual leadership. It's significant. It requires wisdom. Okay? Now, look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Acts 6, verse 5. The church recommends seven men, all of whom, we're still in the solution here, have Greek names. You might not have caught that. They all have Greek names. And one of them, Nicholas, is explicitly identified as this guy's coming from a Greek-speaking city from Antioch. So what did the apostles do? Well, the church recommended and they appointed men who were equipped to both communicate effectively with those who were in need and to lead the rest of the church in meeting that need and caring for that need, Okay. That's why they all have Greek names. But it's worth observing that not all, at least two of these guys didn't just have gifts of mercy. Okay? So look, you see in the list, you see Stephen and you see Philip. Well, who is Stephen? Well, Stephen in the very next chapter in Acts, this guy brings it strong with a serious gift of preaching. I mean, he's talking about going ballistic with preaching. Stephen does that, and he gets killed for it, okay? So he has a gift of mercy, but he's also got a serious preaching gift. Or, or you take Philip. What's Philip do? Well, Philip in chapter 9, he becomes pretty much the early church's first amazing evangelist. Plus, he has a gift of preaching. So what does that tell us? That men who will lead the charge in the ministry of mercy in a local church very often will have all kinds of other gifts, too. Okay? It's not as though if you... The seven, you know, of the 15,000 people, there were only seven guys who only had the gift of the ministry of mercy. Hey, sorry, you know, I'm one of them. I have no other gifts. No, okay? I mean, you can just imagine how many men in a congregation of 10 to 15,000 must have been full of the spirit and wisdom. I mean, a lot of them. But God called seven of them to lead the charge in the ministry of mercy. And so verse 6, what do the apostles do? They pray and lay their hands on them. They set them into office. Now, what do we need to notice about this? Okay, Every Christian is called to a work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. That is so important. All right, 
But some of us are set apart in more formal ways and formal offices to equip and mobilize all of us in doing the ministry God's called us to do. That is not a spiritual hierarchy. One of the things I am praying never happens in this church, ever, is that there's a sense in which if you really want to do ministry, you have to be a pastor. Where you really want to do ministry, you have to be a deacon. If you're not one of the 12, you're not one of the seven, you're a money-giving follower. No, you're not. No, you're not. You were called by God to do a work of ministry which he prepared before you were born to build up the body of Christ. Okay? But God appointed seven men to lead the charge in the ministry of mercy. That was the solution. Let's quickly look at the results. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. And the word of God, this is amazing, continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. You want proof that the ministry of mercy and the ministry of the word go hand in hand. That's it. That's it. That's exactly what happened. As the ministry of mercy was led well, the ministry of the word grew. Now, please don't think in that church that there's a hierarchy even within that, as if the ministry of mercy is only worthwhile if it paves the way for evangelism. That's not true. In and of itself, the ministry of mercy, meeting someone's material, physical needs, that reflects the merciful character of God. Even if you're never able to share the gospel with him, if you have been merciful toward a brother or sister in Christ and the church, then you have communicated something of the mercy of God. But when that ministry of mercy can be combined with the ministry of the word, it does serious damage, right? The word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. I mean, that, that just shatters the notion that, well, you know, where it's really at is with the pastors talking on stage. But unfortunately, we've got these material needs. Can somebody handle that material need? No, no. These were both incredibly significant. Ministry of the word, ministry of mercy, hand in hand. Because the unity and credibility of the gospel were at stake. And the church grew. That was the result. Now to conclude, I think there's one more question left to address. That's this. Williams. And by the way, you're not being smart if you've already been asking this. How come the word deacon is not in Act 6? Anybody catch that? Yeah, I hope you caught that. Why are you preaching from Acts 6 when the word deacon's not in Acts 6? Well, track with me here. I don't want you to leave without getting at least a 30-second or longer answer to that question. <laughs> Where are the deacons, Williams? Okay, well, track with me here. The underlying word, Greek word, for deacon simply means servant. It means servant. And it is found all over the New Testament to describe all kinds of service. All right? But in two places, Philippians 1, 1 Timothy 3, we'll get to Timothy next week, Paul uses the word for servant in more of an official sense, 
to designate one who holds the office of servant. Okay? Now, the word for the office doesn't show up anywhere in Acts 6. That's why the word deacon is not in Acts 6. But the corresponding noun and verb do. All right? Once in verse 1, which the ESV translates as daily distribution, and then again in verse 2, which is translated as to serve. It's the same word, okay? So when you combine the fact that both of those words are present and that the men entrusted with guiding the church's ministry of mercy are set into an official office, we clearly have that in Acts 6, then you've got a strong warrant from Scripture for understanding the seven in Acts 6 as prototypes of the deacons in 1 Timothy 3, okay? I promise I will not talk about Greek that much in my sermons. But that's really important to see, all right? Because Luke, he's a faithful historian. He's a faithful historian. He's not going to call the seven deacons if at that time they had yet to be called deacons. You ought to be grateful for that. It's good history. But in the words of Alexander Strzok, I think I have this quote for you, the apostles' act of forming an official body of servants to care for the needy, was bound to have a lasting influence. Yeah, it did. Of course it did. And so when Paul officially refers to deacons in 1 Timothy 3, it's very interesting. He just assumes the existence of the office. I mean, we're going to see next week, he doesn't explain the origin of the office. He doesn't even give the roles and responsibilities of the office. He just assumes it. Well, how could he do that? Well, it makes a lot of sense he could do that if Acts 6, which took place roughly 30 years before Paul wrote 1 Timothy 3, if what we saw in Acts 6 evolved, grew into a permanent ministry of mercy, such that by the time it came to write to Timothy in Ephesus, of course everybody knows who the deacons are. It's what grew out of the seven. That's the connection, okay? Reviewing this description of deacons in 1 Timothy 3, another author, Benjamin Merkel, argues this. Because Paul did not list any of the duties deacons should perform, it is likely that the early church understood the seven chosen in Acts 6 to be a model for their own ministry. That is, as deacons, they were responsible for caring for the physical needs of the congregation and doing whatever was needed so the elders could focus on their work of teaching and shepherding. By the way, if you examine the records of church history from the first couple centuries, particularly in the second century, that is exactly what we find. Okay? One of the church fathers, Irenaeus, he explicitly identifies the seven in Acts 6 as the first ordained deacons in the church. So think of it this way. Think of it this way. If elders are responsible for leading the charge in meeting the church's spiritual needs, deacons are responsible for leading the charge in meeting the church's material needs. Okay? We'll see that again in 1 Timothy 3. We'll talk more about that in members' meetings. But if you leave today with, with nothing else, I hope you leave with a new understanding, a growing understanding, that when it comes to deacons, this is what should come into your mind, okay? Deacons are those who are responsible 
for guiding the church in meeting material needs through the spiritual ministry of mercy. Okay, I'm going to keep coming back to that definition over and over again. That's why I think we need deacons. And why I would argue that we've never officially had them, though many of you have served in diaconal kinds of ways for decades. Okay? So, that's the opening salvo. Come back next week for more from 1 Timothy 3. But right now, I want to pray and ask that God would give us wisdom. Because this could seem out of the gate like rote, boring church governance. But church, it's not. It's not. Because we serve a merciful God who delights to meet the physical, material needs of his people through the leadership of deacons. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we've covered a lot of ground today. In many ways, this is different than a typical sermon here. Father, I thank you that that you were a God who doesn't abandon us in the details. But you help us know how to be rightly ordered as a church. Thank you that you love your church. And Lord, I pray as as we try to follow your lead in seeing you raise up deacons in this congregation, Lord, I ask that more than anything, every one of us would experience two things, really important things. First, I pray that we would be more and more aware that you've given us a ministry of mercy and that you are a God who delights to meet physical, material needs. Lord, I thank you that we don't have to react to the false gospel that promises prosperity in this life by buying into the lie that you don't care about our bodies. You don't care about our material needs. Jesus, you do. You do. And so right now, Lord, no matter what's going on in our life, we, we bring all our material, physical needs to you. You know what they are. You know where our bodies are hurting. You know where our bank accounts are empty. You know where, where we need a place to live. We need help with bills. The car's not running. God, you know all of that. And I pray that we would not only be aware these next two weeks in a new way that every one of us has been given a ministry of mercy, but we would also secondly, Lord, be so thankful that you've been merciful to us. Lord, I pray that this church would never be a congregation that is known merely for being good people or kind people that you would make this a church that is known in this community for being merciful because we have encountered a merciful God. Lord, would you leave us undone by your mercy that under the leadership of faithful deacons, we could rally in excelling in the ministry of mercy. Or would you do that these next two Sundays? Lay, Lay a foundation that we can grow into this year pray in Jesus' name. Amen.